So Tom, um, I, I'm sorry I don't have this information for me. How long have you been the public defender here in Omaha? Well, I started in the office in 1975 as an assistant, and I became chief deputy in 1983, and then I was elected in 1996 to the, the public defender uh, office. So I've been here for 47 years, um, and uh, I've been the you know the head of the office since uh, 1997. So. Wow. And um, could you give us a little bit of your history growing up? Sure. Uh, where you're from and, you know, why you went to law school and why you ended up in Omaha? Yes, yeah. sure. Well, there's my dad and grandpa. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, they, my, they, my, my family had law enforcement uh, background. My dad was a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer. I never met him. He died when my dad was 10. Um, um, I had uncle that was police, a lot of friends that were police. Um, so it was always kind of criminal justice discussions in our in our household. Um, I went to uh, high school in Springfield um, and it was during those years that I kind of decided, I, was, I liked history and um, government and uh, you know, literature and I did not like math I did not like science and so I kind of figured that maybe um, law school might be uh, something that w I would work for me I went to college in Vermont st. Michael's College in Vermont uh, it's a small uh, at that time all-male uh, uh, college in basically in the suburbs of Burlington Vermont um, again I uh, you know I kind of thrived on the history and humanities and I was an American studies major um, and the head of my department uh, the American studies department was a Midwesterner and uh, he you know he was trying to help us with our future plans for education um, and he uh, had sent several St. Michael's students to Creighton um, and they had been very successful um, students and made it known to him that you know send send some kids out our way so he uh suggested i apply to creighton i applied to suffolk which was in boston university of maine and creighton and uh university of maine was a foolish vermont did not have a law school at that time and, and the university of maine was a dumb move on my part because they were going to accept they, they, this was the first year that they'd reopened the law school, and they were going to accept 67 students, two-thirds of whom had to be residents of Maine. So I, I didn't realize that at the time, but I realized, okay, I'm not going to get in there. I thought I'd end up at Suffolk, um, and this is all true. Um, I got accepted at Creighton, and I was waiting and didn't, didn't hear from Suffolk, didn't hear from Suffolk, so I finally called him. So what's going on? So well, Princeton Testing Service, who used to be the be-all, end-all on all educational testing, had not sent my transcripts to uh, Suffolk. And it got to the point where I had to either make my deposit at Creighton or I'd lose my spot at Creighton. So I called again and Suffolk still didn't have my stuff, and I put the money down and sent all my belongings out here. Um, took my first plane ride in my life 
um, uh, and I landed in Omaha and called my mom to let her know that I'd safely landed. And she said, well, if you want, get on the next plane. You just got accepted at Suffolk <laughs> in, the la- in, the, in the mail today. And uh, I, I said, you know, I'm here. We've sent all, I've got an apartment. I've sent, you know, all my belongings out here. So what I'll do is I'll go a year here and then I'll probably transfer back. And um, I had a really good freshman year of law school. I did really well in class. I, had, I was lucky. I had great teachers um, at Creighton. Um, and I, I, like I said, I did really well. And I started making you know, acquaintances and friends here. And I decided I liked Creighton enough that I would stay, still thinking eventually that I'd probably end up back in Massachusetts. Um, my dad wanted me to be a defense lawyer, not a, not a prosecutor. And his plan was, of course, he would then retire and he would be my investigator and then he could continue to boss me around. <laughs> Unfortunately, dad passed away before I graduated. He, he died in uh, February of my third year in law school. Um, and, but I also came to realize that, you know, I didn't really know any lawyers in in my hometown area, I knew a lot of cops, but I didn't know any really any lawyers. And you know, I became you know I clerked for some law firms, and uh, I became acquainted with a number of lawyers. I was I tended tended bar at Mike Fahey had a bar on Nineteenth and uh, Leavenworth. What was the name? Uh, Fahey's bar, Fahey's <laughs> pub. Um, it the building's gone now, but. Um, I, I met a lot of, as you can well imagine, I met a lot of lawyers at that bar, including members of the public defender's office. And, um, you know, my interest was in criminal law. And, um, you know, I applied and uh, eventually I got uh, a job that was um, basically it was a, a grant uh, fund that started me off. So, I, so I, you know, I passed the bar in, in July, and they started me August 1st on this grant um, funding. It was $12,500 a year. I'll never forget that. Um, luckily, uh, there were several departures shortly thereafter, so I got on full-time at, uh, or I mean, as an employee of Douglas County in September. So it was, I was only on the grant for about a, a month or so. Um, and, uh, you know, from there, I... Uh, I got a chance to try cases, which um, I loved doing and can still do. Um, And, uh, you know, I've always been kind of for the underdog. Um, I'm a Mets fan. Uh, You know, they're not underdogs this year. Maybe to the Dodgers, but not anybody else. Yeah, you're right. This year, it's been somewhat of an anomaly (laughs) or an aberration, I guess. But, um, you know, uh, th- that's how, kind of how I um, always felt. And, you know, I, honestly, I went to a Catholic grade school and Catholic high school. And, you know, the, back then, the, the nuns kind of pounded into you how, how you're supposed to put yourself second and help, help poor people. And, you know, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And um, while, while there are some things that were 
silly that were <laughs> in Catholic schools back then. Um, that was something that stuck with me, and to this day I firmly believe in. Um, so I never really contemplated uh, any other job. Uh, once I got myself into the this office and got to start trying cases, um, I hoped that I would start here and end here. I'm, you know, I'm from that uh, the older generation that you know you don't you don't change jobs very frequently um and uh, and i'm not condemning anyone that does don't don't get me wrong it's just my my makeup is okay you're here and i i never realized it that or i didn't use my common sense and say uh, okay i'll stay here until the job's done well the job ain't ever going to be done <laughs> ain't ever going to be done so i i just um you know, I just, I just uh, am real happy here. I, I've got a wonderful staff of lawyers uh, that I think very highly of, and I think um, do a, do a great job. Um, and you know, probably one of the things I enjoy the most is being a mentor to the to the younger lawyers. Um, I have an open door policy, and um, they're all confident enough in me that they know they can come and ask me a question and know that I'm not going to say, well, that's a stupid question. Um, I'm not going to do that. Now, if they come back and ask me the same question five times, I might have to say something about it, but that, that's, that's a rarity. How many attorneys um, have worked you know, in, in your office since you've been um, the public defender? Like, how many attorneys have come through the doors? Oh, yeah. There, yes, there's been, a, there's been a, a, a large number of lawyers that have um, come through, and you know the reasons for departure vary. Uh, some, some, uh, you know, start very young here. They're single, and then they, you know, decide to get married and maybe move. Or some people move back home to where they came from originally. Uh, some people, um, you know, they get married and have kids, and you know, obviously, being in government work isn't. You're not going to become a millionaire. Um, so you know, they want to provide for their kids and family and and if an opportunity arises they'll, they'll take it and I my position on that has always been if it's your career and when you come to the fork in the road you want to be the person driving the car not the one sitting in the back seat so you make that decision and I'll support it um, and you know unfortunately we lose some really good lawyers um, and that's just the nature of the beast, I guess. I guess I was I was asking in the way of you've mentored so many people along the way. I was asking <laughs> in the opposite way, which maybe is there's there's been a lot of turnover. It's you know you've touched a lot of um, people in in the community in the legal community, big names that you know we we know of. It's it's just been you've you've had quite a lot of mentoring opportunities. Yes, I yeah, and there there are a lot of. Uh, alums, shall I call them, uh, that are uh, really, really good lawyers. And but I knew that when we hired them. I mean, I knew they were going to be good. And you know, if you try to hire the best people, you realize that they're going to get poached probably at some point in time. Um, but uh, you know, that's that. Like I said, that's the nature of the beast, and I, I can live with that. Um, it's it's always hard when you see someone that. Is really coming to their own. Is really doing great when they and they leave. Um, it it's a blow, um, but and and a lot of these people are really tight. 
uh, luckily they maintain their friendships after they leave. Um, but yeah, I, I can I can think of you know dozens of, of good lawyers that are out there that that uh, started off in here, and I'm really happy for them and proud of them. Um, so take me back just for a second. You're talking to your your cop dad. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to law school, mm-hmm. and he says. You know, you should look at this criminal defense thing. I think you'd be good at it. I think it, mm-hmm. it fits. Yep. Um, is there, I'm, I'm just, I'm, in my mind, I'm coming up with a divide in the cop community over a defense side and maybe a prosecution side, or, you know, mm-hmm. where some of his, his cop buddies were like, no, he, he needs to go be a prosecutor. Um, you're you're leading lead him wrong here. You know, there's some truth in that, but I, policing in Chicopee, Massachusetts in the 50s and 60s, it's a lot different than it is now. Um, some of my some of my childhood friends, my dad got them on the police department, and you know their attitude is a lot different than my dad's. Um, you know, in 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 many occasions back then, you know, you know, it, it's just the culture change. You know, if if they pulled someone over and they had too much to drink, many times what they would do is bring them bring them to the jail take the keys and say, call your wife or call your husband and have them come and get you. You know, you know, if they, if they puked on their shoe or, or smacked the one of the cops, that's a different story. But, um, policing was a lot different. You know, that would not be accepted today and, and probably justifiably so, but everyone knew each other. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't a situation where they were trying to, um, get as many notches in their belt as they could. It just was a different culture. That isn't to say that there were some police back then that were friends with my dad that were much more um, like they are today. Um, You know, when I pick juries, um, a lot of times someone will say my husband's a police officer or my dad was a police officer. I said, well, did they ever talk about cases? And so many times they say, oh, no, you never talk about cases. That's all they talked about. <laughs> when, I, when I'd be sitting, you know, in the, in the kitchen, uh, my dad would be sitting there with three or four other cops um, drinking beer and having shots. <laughs> um, and all, that's all they talked about was what they did. Um, and I, I always kind of internally grin when I, when they say they never talk about it, I don't think that has changed that much. People just don't want to admit that. Yeah, that's all they talk about. <laughs> but you know, he he um, he he was friends with a couple of defense lawyers that I really didn't know about until I was in law school, and I think they may have had some influence with him. He was also very good friends with the the district attorney back there, um, who was he was kind of an icon. Um, and, uh, you know, things didn't turn out very well for him. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of, um, organized crime in Springfield and sometimes police and prosecutors got, um, you know, entangled in some of those things. And, you know, I remember when he resigned, uh, I was floored. I, I thought, you know, this guy was on a pedestal to pretty much everybody and, um, he, he got caught up in it, you know, probably in his later years, uh, not forever, but 
um, it it's uh, you know the the defense lawyers that my dad knew I think probably had some influence with him in saying hey you know um, this is a proud profession to be a defense lawyer and there's nothing wrong with it and like I said my dad he did, I don't I, I don't think he ever shot his fired his uh, service revolver ever um, except at the range when he had to do it you know um, we didn't have a lot of you know there was there weren't any gangs and there were there were hoods back then <laughs> and I don't mean neighborhoods I mean guys that were they called hoods um, but there was there was none of this organized gang stuff um, that you know he was involved in investigating a couple of murders he was a, he ended his days as a lieutenant in the well at, until he got really sick he he was in the detective bureau um, and loved it um, and I guess it talked about it all the time um, but you know I never got the impression that he thought even the even the people who committed some serious crimes were all Jack the Ripper he he kind of recognized that there was a lot more screw-ups than um, a-holes you know so since he was a detective and ha you know talk about the cases you know investigating getting the details getting the storylines yeah. I mean that was yeah. something yeah. that you talked about at home and, yeah. and that yeah. that certainly has helped what you do now right yeah you know I mean one, one story I like to tell a lot is when Miranda first came out you know that was when my dad was in detective bureau and uh, I remember him freaking out about it at first and um, they were talking about sometimes what they would do is they'd put the suspect over in a corner and they'd walk away from him and say okay I have to write your name yeah anything they gave me, you know and that they would we said it but they they quickly realized that there was absolutely nothing wrong with it it did not it did not interfere with their investigation it made in many respects it made them better cops um and I would say within a year or two of Miranda coming down it was accepted procedure and it wasn't like well, why do we have to do this BS? You know, um, I think that the initial was the initial knee-jerk reaction. Um, so, you know, the, you know, those are the kind of stories that I I grew up with um, listening to um, them talk. Usually, me overhearing them more than me being involved in it. Although, as I got into high school, I did get involved in the discussions, and you know, those were turbulent years um, with you know the Vietnam War going on and a lot of uh, uh, protests and you know um <laughs> there I, I remember one time um when muhammad ali was still cassius clay uh he was fighting sonny liston in lewiston maine and he did his training in chicopee and he had to have police you know when he was run, like doing his road work and stuff they had police driving with him and Initially, Dad was saying, "Oh, this guy's a jerk. He's, you know, his you know, mouth off and stuff." Then they met him and said, "Well, the guy's a great guy. He bought us all sorts of, you know, food and treated us great." I said, "Yeah, Dad. See, you know, first first impressions, um, or when you haven't even met someone, can give you the wrong." And you know, he he came to realize that, yeah, just just because uh, the guy was an activist. Um, didn't mean that he was a bad person. And as a, as a matter of fact, found out that he was actually was a good guy. You know, he liked him. Um, and most of the cops, I think, 
felt that way initially, and he turned them all around. You know, I mean, those, those are kind of things that um, kind of stick with me. Uh, you know, life lessons that you know you you, you can apply even to this day. Yeah, yeah. Be be open to empathy and understanding others. Yeah, may have a different opinion. Um, you said you had some great professors at, at Creighton Law. Mm -hmm. uh, give, give me some highlights. Uh, oh, Mike Fenner um, was terrific. Uh, he really cared about the students, um, was always available to, to after class to talk to. Um, he had a, one of his classmates who was a really good friend of his, uh, was named... Um, Ralston, I can't remember his first name, but I think Richard, he ended up becoming a uh, federal magistrate in Kansas City. I, they went to, I think, uh, UMKC Law School. And so I had Fenner for con law, and I had Ralston for civil pro. I had Pat Mullen for torts, and some people didn't like him. I loved him. I thought he was great. His daughter works here, um, and he's a terrific lawyer, by the way. Um, I had Dr. Shagru, everybody knows Dr. Shagru, and probably, probably everyone in my era had him for some class. Um, and it, you know, th those guys were my first year, first exposure to law school. I was so lucky to have them because they were all really, really good and really, they were, gave a, gave a damn about the students. Um, and uh, I, uh, like I said, I, I was very lucky to have them, and I, you know, it, it made me a better student, and that's why I w was successful. You know, I wasn't as successful in my second and third year. I started clerking, and probably didn't um, had my priorities a little screwed up. I spent too much time work, you know, working in the law firms, and not as much on my studies. Um, plus, the first year I didn't know anybody out here, so I studied all the time. You know. Um, but those teachers were very inspirational to me, and um, I, I, you know, I'm indebted to them for, you know, showing me how interesting law school was and how important it was, and you know that yes, you can succeed, you can do this, you know. Uh, for for the for the record, um, can you give me some some stats on the breadth and scope of, of what this office does? I know it's it's stuff we could probably read about online, but you know um, how many cases are are you guys dealing with? Yeah, we you know we we um, we we keep stats. I'm not going to say that they're um, one thousand percent accurate, but they're they're pretty pretty accurate. Um, over the last you know I'll say last five or six years, I'd say on an average, we have about ten thousand give or take um, misdemeanors. Um, about 3,500 to 4,000 felonies. Um, we have uh, the numbers in juvenile court are more, a little bit more, more difficult to um, keep because they keep the cases open. You know, it's like in a felony or misdemeanor, open, close. And so those are a little bit more difficult, but it, we, we represent people, uh, kids that are uh, charged with crimes in juvenile court and delinquencies, and then we have, uh, we also represent parents uh, on three A's where they're in danger of losing their parental rights. Um, so, you know, we also represent clients um, who uh, are um, subject to 
incarceration for failure to pay child support and contempts. We represent people who are subject to involuntary hospitalization through the Board of Mental Health. Um, and we have uh, SOCA cases, which are uh, sex offenders who uh, don't get released uh, upon their completion. They get committed. Um, it's a Sex Offender Commitment Act. Um, and so after you complete your sentence, um, the Nebraska statute recently, you know, recently in the last 10 years or so, um, have allowed uh, the state to pursue further confinement. Um, and what they do is they put them in the Norfolk Regional Center. It's kind of like a commitment. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's based on mental health, uh, allegedly. Um, they have annual reviews, yeah, and um, it's it's a struggle. Um, you know that a lot of those are uh, kind of BMH situations, um, and you know, a lot, frankly, a lot of them are just getting warehoused. Um, what sort of numbers are we talking for that? Oh, uh, in the twenties, probably. Um, you know. The way judges are give, dealing out sentences, a lot of times people aren't getting out, so they don't have to. <laughs> they don't have to go to the Sex Offender Commitment Act. They just right. kind of sit in prison and rot. Right. And I say that um, cynically. Right. Um, the and and you have is it about fifty attorneys? About fifty. Well, we're, we're at full strength. We're at fifty-six. Um, we're we're short-handed right now. We've had some departures, as I was making mention of. Um, we've got uh, several openings that we're having a little trouble, honestly, filling because uh, the market is different now than it was yeah, just, five, yep, five, six, six years ago. Yeah. And um, and then 56 attorneys, um, sports staff level, is it maybe half that? Uh, we have about, um, we have four investigators, we have one trial assistant, and we have about, let's see, what is it, probably 10 or 12 um, secretaries, for lack of a better term. We have an office manager, um, uh, and she does a hell of a job uh, keeping all the books and numbers and uh, payroll and all of that, so I don't have to mess with that. Uh, so she's a godsend, um, and she's terrific at the job. She's been here for quite a while. Um, so we're we're in the process of recognizing we need more trial assistance. We have part-time law clerks, but during the school year, their hours are pretty minimal. Which and I've told them, don't make the same mistake I did. You know, keep your grades up so when you get out of law school, you have some options on where to go. Um, and I, you know, they heed that. Um, and. You know, during the summer and during the holidays, we have, you know, I think eight law clerks. Um, and they're full-time at that for those months. And, and you know, hopefully um, we can uh, hire some of them. You know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Uh, and, you know, they can hit the ground running because they know the, how the place operates. And um, I prefer, in most cases, to hire new lawyers so we can treat them teach them our way of doing things. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, yes. It, it, it's, it's a little more difficult, you know, if you get someone from private practice or someone from another PD's office. It, but people do things differently. And I'm not saying we're right and they're wrong. It's just different. Um, and, uh, you know, I, you know I, I tell a lot of lateral hires, that, you know, this is mud wrestling here. I'm telling you, so if you think, you know, you're going to put on a powdered wig and go down to, to the courthouse and <laughs> uh, be treated that way, you're, you're sadly mistaken. This is mud wrestling here, Douglas County. Uh, and, I mean, to that point, I'll call you guys David. Goliath is city attorney and Douglas County Attorney's Office. They, they have probably doubled the numbers. The, the, city, the city prosecutor's office does not. Um, they they don't have, um, I want to say maybe 12, 15. County attorney's office, on the other hand, yeah, they, they've got a lot more uh, lawyers than us. I'd say 10 or 12 more, in fairness to Don um, and their office. They also represent people who are charged with crimes that have privately retained lawyers, right. too. Right. So... You know, there's there's justification for the for the difference in numbers. Um, I will say that you know I, I always kind of preach to the lawyers when they come in. I say you know I don't know how anyone can do this in 40 hours a week. I don't know how you can do this. And I used to preach that when all of the evidence was basically in written in police reports. Now, video, body cam, all the witnesses in big cases are being interviewed. Um, and recorded. So the time consumption for trial prep and motion prep is way more difficult than it was when I was doing this initially. Um, it, it can be overwhelming. And, you know, we need to hire, we need to hire some more support staff people, maybe some more investigators, definitely more trial assistants um, who are kind of paralegally type things. Um, the one we have um, is, I mean, I, I don't know what I'd do without her. I mean, she is top-notch and takes on, you know, way, way too much. Um, and she helps me with every case I have, and she also helps a lot of other lawyers that are doing serious crimes. And she's being stretched way too thin, so we're going to have to get and train some more um, trial assistance to to keep up with the workload. I mean, I, I don't want people leaving because they're overwhelmed. Um, and, you know, that, that's becoming a danger now. I, I, I like to get into policy here. So so y'all are paid for by the county mm -hmm. budget? That's correct. And do they get an allocation from, um, from the state government, or is it all county taxable income that then – County taxes that pays for public defenders, or do they do they get some help from from state funds? No, it is totally county funded. Our office. County commissioners are the ones that we. Yes, every every year we go and do the budget dance um, uh, with the county commissioners, and I will say that in my experience, they have been very very um, accommodating to both our office and the county attorney's office um, when we go go and explain why we need more. Us more help and can show them they've been uh, good about it you know we we were w too far behind uh, some some other 
comparable counties or even not comparable. Lancaster, Sarpy, our starting pay was significantly less than theirs. And, you know, I, Don and I finally got together and said, we got we to do something about this because we're losing people. Um, and uh, we made a showing to the county commissioners and they, you know, allowed us to bump the salaries up to be competitive with, with Lancaster and Sarpy and Council Bluffs. Um, so, you know, it, it's an ongoing battle. Um, you know, you can fall behind really quickly. I mean, I, our starting pay now is it's like 69. Um, and I just saw on our public defender listserv that, um, I want to say Buffalo County was listing and said, uh, starting salary 78. I just heard, um, Denver a hundred for the PDs. Yep. Um, you know, that there's so many different, um, structurals of public defenders offices across the country you know there's statewide i think colorado is statewide um so they have a, a structure on uh, on how they how they do their hiring and how they are uh, managed um there's no perfect way to do it um you know do, doing it as an elected office isn't perfect either um i mean my first time i ran against a, a opponent who basically ran ads that say, um, I'm going to defend the public. And I, I think he should have got disbarred, to be honest with you, uh, for making comments like that. Um, and uh, uh, kind of misleading, you know, that he was saying that uh, liberal Tom Riley, he's dangerous to your family. That was on a TV ad. You know, my kids would come home in tears saying, kids, that's cool, saying you're dangerous. You know, so he would say, um, Riley's against the death penalty. Well, duh. I'm a public <laughs> defender. You know. I mean. So you're gonna you're gonna are you for the public? You're gonna represent people and say uh, I'm in favor of getting given the death penalty. I mean, it was just asinine. Um, so um, you know the 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 dynamics of of what we have to do is is different. Um, me, to me, the most important thing is to not have a public defender's office overseen by judges. Some states, the judges appoint the head public defender. Yes. And I think that's really bad because, you know, if you give the judge a hard time, you know, make them, uh, you know, uh, do a lot of work, they're going to say, screw this um, and get rid of you. I mean, the and recently in Oregon, the uh, state Supreme Court fired the public defender um, because he was making them do things that defense lawyers should be doing. Yeah, well, you know, so it's it, it, in systems like that, I just think it's better. I think the, federal, the feds do it that way. I think the Eighth Circuit determines who the federal public defender is here, and, and you can ask Dave Stickman. Um, I, I think that's how it works. And, uh, you know, Far be it for me to criticize the the work of the federal defenders because most of them used to work here. <laughs> Not Dave, but uh, you know they they pay a lot better than we do here. Um, and I I know most of the lawyers over there, and they're really really good lawyers. Um, and you know Dave is a good advocate and probably is able to convince the judges on the Eighth Circuit how important it is be a zealous defender and good for him.
Um, but I, as I gave you an example or two, the, some places aren't quite like that. And it's well, certainly in today's day and age, it seems like, uh, you know, you can offend somebody for doing yeah. your job. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and if they have the levers to kick you out, yep. you know, thin skinned yeah. on the whole thing. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, scary. So, uh, so any, uh, any feathers in your cap over the years that you really, you know, are proud of either, either like a, um, a change to the, the laws of the state or, or, you know, the practice of criminal defense or, or even just a few case highlights that, okay. that you want to throw out there? Okay. I will, I will tell you that when I'm asked that question, it's an easy answer for me. Um, when the U.S. Supreme Court said that um, you can't give a juvenile life without parole if that's the only option, um, and the Nebraska Supreme Court made it retroactive, um, this office had represented, I believe, 13 offenders uh, who were doing life in prison for offenses that occurred prior to their 18th birthday. Uh, now you may or may not recall that um, that didn't sit well with some attorneys general across the country. And in matter of fact, in Iowa, they convinced the governor who has the pardon and commutation powers to commute all of the lifer sentences to 150 years, thereby getting around. That's a commute right there. Yeah, that, so, so they aren't doing life anymore and they're, they're screwed. Well, I got wind that the pardons board here, m consisting of the governor, the AG, and the secretary of state, and it was the AG that was the moving party at the time, was going to do the same thing. They were going to meet and um, commute everyone's sentence to 150 years. Well, I heard about that, and uh, I, I filed a request for an injunction precluding them from meeting um, and basically then stopping them from doing that. And much to my everlasting surprise and joy, um, Judge Otepka granted it. As a result, um, all 13 of those guys got resentenced, and six of them have been released, and not one of them has reoffended. Um, and I, I stay in contact with them. Um, they are all employed or, re or old enough to be retired, for lack of a better term. None, like I said, none of them have reoffended. Um, I'm, uh, it, it's the proudest moment uh, was a getting that injunction uh, to to stop what I thought would have been a terrible injustice, um, and then going through the the resentencings. Um, I wasn't successful in getting all of them out. Some of them still have some pretty hefty numbers to deal with, um, but you know, getting six of them that would still be languishing in prison um, is something I'm I'm proud of. Now, a lot of people will say, you know, 
why would you be proud of getting murderers out of out of prison? And the answer to that is because all of the science, which is now indisputable, says that the um, adolescent brain is not fully developed until age 25. And the U.S. Supreme Court basically said children are different and have to be treated differently. Um, and as, as a result, you know, like I said, some of, the, some of them who did some pretty hefty numbers um, but have been released and um, they're, they're productive members of society, I, I'm very confident that they do not pose any risk to the public. As a matter of fact, last week or this, earlier this week, I was uh, asked by a, a group of life lifers at NSP to come and speak on that very issue, uh, because some states' um, courts have extended it beyond 17. Uh, some there's one that's 18, one that's 19, one that's 21. Um, and um, so I went down to Penn and there were several senators there um, and you know the topic was you know the, the brain development and what legislatively or in court can we do to further this and I, I would say there were about 40 lifers sitting in that room maybe be within that band, do you think? That would what? Would be within that band? Well, I, I, I said to him, okay, after I gave my opening remarks about 25, I said, how many of you guys are in here for an offense that occurred prior to your 25th birthday? I would say 90 plus percent. And I mean, I saw guys in there, I'm, I'm 72 years old, and I saw guys in there that are older than me in wheelchairs in, um, you know, using canes or, or having a, trouble getting around. And I said, my, man, these, these, these folks pose absolutely no danger to society. But then I think they've been in there for 30, 40, 50 years. They have no one. They have, if we were to let them out of prison tomorrow, they'd be living under a bridge somewhere. And it, when I was driving back from Lincoln, you know, I, my mind thinks drifts and thinks about these things and you know I, many states even for first degree murder the penalty is something to life not life it gives the judge some opportunity to um, if a person could show that they're deserving of uh, parole that they have hope I mean many of these guys that I I just told you about that are out now, 15 years ago, had no hope. But they didn't give up hope. It's, it's an amazing. One, one guy had been there for 40 years and had one write-up in 40 years. And in prison, they write you up if you don't have your shoes tied, if you have your shirt untucked. I mean, literally one write-up. Um, and, you know, it... it, it these guys proved the science is accurate because they, they did some, not one of them said they were innocent. Not one of the people I represented said they were not involved. Now, a couple of them were down there on felony murder as an accomplice and are not, you know, were not the shooter, but they still got a life sentence.
that that ain't right. Um, I, you know, so I'm I'm hoping that as time goes on, there'll be some legislative changes on the felony murder rule that would make some accommodation for the person who um, didn't do the actual killing, and you could show that maybe didn't even know that the person that went in to rob the store was even armed. You know, they they maybe planned they were going to steal something, but that doesn't mean that they knew there was going to be a shooting. So those are the kind of things that I still look forward to trying to, to remedy. Uh, like I said, I, would, I really wish that we could have done some uh, criminal justice reform in the last session. Uh, I, I was on a committee that, that was called by the governor, by Steve Lathrop and Chief Justice Hevkin. Did all sorts of work on it, proposed a bill, and the police and um, the county attorney's association depth charged it. Um, it didn't make it to the floor. Uh, did make it to the floor. Later, got it to the floor, um, but um, they he he couldn't get the votes, um, and they filibustered it. Um, so it it was disappointing, and I I, I know I I've known Steve for my whole professional career pretty much. He's a little younger than me. Um, and a lot smarter than me, um, but I've, I've never seen him so disappointed and disheartened um, uh, as to how that, how that all shook out. Um, and I, I share his, his disappointment. Um, they, had, they had all sorts of data and information, and it just, um, just you know, the, the legislature is very, very, uh, the County Attorney's Association and the police associations have a lot of slack with the legislators um, and if they're opposed to something it, it's a steep hill to climb to to get there now we'll see what happens with this upcoming election to see if we can get some more people that unfortunately Steve has um, opted not to run for re-election um, he was a leader on this um, but I, I don't blame him I'm not mad at him um, he put his heart and soul into this effort and um, Sometimes you throw your hands up and say, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, yeah. No, I, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it, it, uh, it finds a new champion. Yeah. Well, there, there's some, you know, Terrell McKinney down there, John Cavanaugh's down there, John's an alum of our office. Um, and we're losing, you know, Moorfeld, we're losing um, Patty Panting Brooks, um, we're losing McAllister. Um, so there's some, some people that we're, we're losing that were. Um, definitely on our on our on, on board on some of these. I'm not saying that they were all on board on every single point, but by and large, they were in favor of some of the criminal justice reform that we were proposing. Um, so you know, um, maybe we can. Uh, you know, there'll be a new governor, and um, there'll be a number of new legislators, and maybe maybe we can um, convince some of them that these. Proposals that we're making in the legislation are not uh, going to sacrifice the public safety, because no. that—that's understandably that's the issue to them. I, I get it. Um, so you know, it's on us to to convince them that these these measures are not going to um, let Jack the Ripper out onto the street. Um, but as we get more information. We understand better. Yeah. 
yeah. humans and, yeah. and everything like yeah. that and how they yeah. how they function. Maybe we can do this. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe with some new blood in there and maybe a fresh uh, approach, you know, with, with people that don't have predisposed ideas already on it, maybe we can get somewhere with it. Um, we'll see. So, um, so back to the, the mentoring, what, what, you know, what are some gems, some Tom Riley gems that you're telling these young attorneys? What, what are some, some tips, some, uh, some big picture tips some maybe some small picture tips when it comes down to how, you know, how to even do something in, in, you know, this person's courtroom, but more generally how to be a good attorney out there, it, it, you know, for, for the people who aren't in your office who, who want to know what's, you know, what's the secret sauce that Tom it, really it's, it's not, it, it's not really, um, rocket science. Um, you know, I have a couple, you know, when we have office meetings, uh, you know, the, off, the lawyers that have been here for 25 years, they I know what Riley's going to say. Riley's gonna say. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'll tell them things like, uh, as, a, as a defense lawyer, we can't control a hell of a lot. There's one thing we can do, control, and that is how prepared we are. We can get to the point where the best they can do is tie us on preparation. And I guarantee you that if you work really hard, you frequently will be able to out-prepare your opposition. And again, that's no slam on opposing counsel. I'm just saying that that's the mindset you have to have. Is I'm not going to let my opponent outwork me. Period. End of story. And if that means I have to stay here till seven o'clock or eight o'clock at night on some occasion, so be it. Um, do it because that's how you succeed. I tell them that being in a public defender's office, you have to deal with peaks and valleys. You know the 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 uh, elation that you feel when you uh, have a successful outcome of a not guilty verdict or uh, a really good sentence that you were worried was going to go south, um, that that really makes you feel good. And then there's other times when you're going to get kicked in the teeth, shall we say, um, and you're going to find yourself um, questioning what you're doing and uh, how you're doing it. And you, you can't you can't let that happen. When you get into one of those valleys and you find yourself struggling, that's when you want to come and talk to me, and we'll talk through what the problems are, and and um, you know, get get you to the point where you're not in that low low valley. Um, you know, I I you know obviously I, I tell them things like. If you, if you have a motion to suppress, don't have the hearing and then do the research. Do the research first. Now, obviously, you never know for sure what someone's going to testify about, but you can read the cases that are germane to the issue. So when you are asking questions, you're covering the points that need to be covered because, you know, so many times that if you do it the opposite way, you do the examination or cross-examination, and then you read the case and say, oh, damn, I should have asked this question because that's important to the court. Um, so, you know, I, I, again, that goes to the preparation, but it, it's a technique that, that I think maybe is somewhat counterintuitive. You might think, well, geez, geez I don't know what they're going to say. How can you research this thing until after the hearing occurs? Well, for the most part, 
I agree with you. You don't want to write your brief until after the hearing, but you want to do your research so you know what points you have to make and what what um, you know pitfalls there are that you need to avoid or hurdles, whatever. You know, I I, I tell people trust their gut. Um, that's really really important. Um, you know, I, I I tell people when you're you know, getting ready for a trial. You have to say, okay, if this happens, here's what I'm going to do. If this if this happens, here are the options that I have, and think them through, and be ready to go with them, not knowing which one is going to be best until you are in the courtroom, and you know, have have kind of sized up the jury, sized up the judge. Um, you know, I tell them, you can get as pissed off or as angry as you want at the opponent or the court, but don't don't be disrespectful to either opposing counsel or the judge. You can come back down here afterwards, throw something some on the wall and curse, cuss your to the high heavens. And I'm not gonna get mad at you for that, but do not, do not, because that's a life sentence. If you, if you show disrespect to a judge um, or to an opposing counsel or lie to them, you know, you're done with them. Um, and I, I, the same way, if I have a, a opposing counsel that tries to play cute with me, um, that stays right here and it doesn't go away. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, client, I always try to tell people the most important thing in this office is the client, period, end of story. And it's really difficult because many of our clients have a combination of poverty, lack of education, distrust for us, distrust for the system, substance abuse issues, mental health uh, issues, anger issues, um, and you, you just have to realize that that's gonna be a significant portion of our clientele having one or more of those traits. You have to engender the trust. You have to, you have to, you know, really work hard to get the trust of the of the clients because we're not their lawyer of choice um and uh you know that no one likes to be called a public pretender um and uh yeah it, it rankles me when people say it um you know <laughs> uh i i uh i tell them when you're talking to the client you have to make 1000 percent sure that the, you have communicated to them what you want Words, words matter. Um, sorry, Word, words matter, and I, I give them all as an example. Let's say that you have a guy that's um, out on bond; he's going to get sentenced for DUI or burglary or something. And he calls you up and says, "What am I going to get when, when I go to court? What's my sentence going to be?" Well, many times you don't know. So I say, "Don't say." Well, I can't tell you because how are they gonna interpret that? They're gonna say, you know, but you, you have these secret rules and you can't tell me what it is. So it's a, it's a kind of a silly example, but it, 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 the point is you have to tell them, I'm gonna advocate for you um, and I'm gonna hope that we can keep you out of jail or I'm gonna hope for a low sentence, um, but I don't know what the judge is gonna do and we're not gonna know until we get in there. Um, so, so like I say, words really do matter and it can make a difference on how the client views the lawyer 
and how how um, candid they'll be in our interviews with them. You know, um, you know, I tell them it's important to maintain a line of contact with the, with the client, um, and when you have a heavy caseload, it becomes difficult to you know uh, spend the amount of time with clients that you would you would like to. So you have to you know when when you do spend time with them, make sure that it counts. Make sure that you 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 go over there with a plan if you're going to the jail, and say here's the things I want to talk about, um, and try to get through them. Sometimes you won't. Um, sometimes the client doesn't want to hear it. Um, but you know I said don't lie to them. Don't don't tell them you're going to be able to do something that you can't do and don't tell them that they're screwed either um you know you have to be realistic with them but you don't say well we're you know you're going to get life in prison i mean so or we're not going to win this case so you might as well plead those 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 are non-starters for me i mean at some point in time you you know obviously you have to tell the client uh, the evidence in this case is not favorable to us, and they, the state has offered this kind of a, a plea bargain. It's up to you to take it or not take it. And uh, it, you ask me any question you want as to what I think, um, whether you should or shouldn't, or what, what, what the factors are you should consider. But ultimately, it's you that has to make that call. Because if you are not satisfied that that's as good as it's going to get, then we'll keep keep trying. We'll go, you know, to go to Plan B, you know. So you know, those those are kind of in a nutshell the the broad parameters of the things that I try to to talk to them about. When it when they when when they come in with a specific question about a specific case, you know, thank God for Westlaw, you know, um, and we'll, we'll sit here and and talk about the issues, and you know, I'll say go back and I'll. I'll do some research, you do some research, and let's see if we come up with the same stuff. Um, you know, I, I've been around the horn enough to know what some of the easy answers are uh, and where to look. Um, you know, Judd Burns, who, Tim Burns, who used to be, uh, was a longtime lawyer in this office, he's the smartest guy in the courthouse, as far as I'm concerned. No disrespect to the other judges or anyone else, but when the lawyers would go in and talk to him, and say, oh, that's State versus Jones, you know, and he'd pull out his uh, file cabinet and have go Xerox this case. This is right on point. I mean, he had that kind of grasp of the of the law. And, um, yeah, he's my friend, but um, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. This guy is just really, really smart, and he knows the law, and he, he's a terrific judge. Um, you know, so... You know, those are the, the the kind of things that we we discuss most frequently. Um. So, I'm going to give you a chance to clear up some misconceptions, public misconceptions that are out there. Giving you the mic, giving you the ability to say this isn't true. You know, people okay. say this isn't true. I'm okay. sure you got a list. Um, I don't. I don't have the list, but. But you know, um, t- tell tell me some misconceptions and, and clear them up for us. Okay, well, um, one of, one of them that is always somewhat um, confounding to me is the the clients who are so distrustful and say, "Well, you know, you get paid no matter what happens," um, 
I said, well, so does the private lawyer. They, this isn't on a contingency fee like <laughs> plaintiff's law. If you go, if you go to hire a private lawyer, they're going to say, here's what it's going to cost you, at least to start with. And it's not, they don't give it back to you if they lose or you aren't satisfied with the verdict. Um, so, yeah, we do get paid no matter what happens, but so do they. Um, so it, it's, it, and it does not change what we do. Um, public defenders uh, are overworked and underpaid. Um, that's an exaggeration to my, I mean, I, I used to go to a lot of these national conferences and it's, sometimes they just were wine fests, you know, I said, come on, just strap it on and let's go, you know. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm a little bit too much on that side. Um, you know, do I think that um, our lawyers deserve to be adequately paid? Absolutely. Do I think they are? Not quite. But it's not like this where we're getting totally screwed. That's not true in some some places. I mean, I had a lawyer that came from Miami's public defender's office, and he we gave him what we thought was a reasonable offer, and it was a huge raise from what he was making in Miami. Yeah, you know, Miami where it's so expensive to live. Huh? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, so um, it, it, it to say that it isn't true is not is inaccurate because in some places it is and, and you know most of it most of it is south of the mason dixon line to be honest with you um you know some states don't even have public defenders they have just court appointed lawyers and um you know a, a lot of times you know we'll get examples of some you know well this court appointed lawyer was caught sleeping during the trial and you know you read the case and god damn that, that's what happened but it was some knucklehead that the judge in Texas appointed, who was his pal, and you know, really didn't give a darn about whether the guy won or lost. So some of those horror stories are explainable if if given if we were given the opportunity to explain them. You know, um, the the caseload is always a challenge. Uh, so you know, to to say overworked maybe isn't the term I would use, but you know, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of work to be done, and it can be overwhelming at times. Um, you know, the uh, to be honest with you, when I won a big case, uh, won a homicide, and the guy had been in jail for a while, and they're so thankful and say, "Man, can I like give you some money, or or can I buy you something, or what?" I say, the best thing you can do for me is to go back to your community and say, the public defender represented me and I won and they do a hell of a job. Yeah. I said, that, that's what I want. Public confidence, yeah. Yes, yeah. I, I want you to tell your community, whether it be North Omaha, West Omaha, South Omaha, primarily North and South, where the majority of our clients come from, uh, that no, we're, we're not a bunch of um, hacks. Um, we do care and we do our best and um, that you'll get a zealous defense from this office, and in the right case, you'll go home. Um, and you know, I, I've, I, I know that some people have actually done that, but because it, I, you know, I, I've heard back from some of them, and or sometimes you go into a grocery store or a 
Walmart or Target or whatever and say, hey, Mr. Riley, yeah, do you remember me? Mm. <laughs> Give me the facts of the case, I'll remember it. <laughs> or they'll say, you know, some, sometimes when they say their name. Um, you know, and I, I don't want I don't want you to go away thinking that every client that I've ever had or everyone here is, thinks that we're you know uh, the the greatest thing since uh, sliced bread. But um, I I have no hesitance in saying that you know the lawyers in this office do care and um, do want. I mean, I've seen way too many people coming down after court in tears, um, and I'm talking about people with law degrees not not just families um there are some really really difficult things that we have to do to tell you know when when a kid a 17 year old kid gets convicted of a homicide and is going to go for a long time and the mom and dad or uh or siblings or you know we bring them into the conference room and it's really difficult they're in tears they're heartbroken in many cases um we're disappointed um, it, it, that stuff, that stuff really is, is difficult. And it's one of the reasons some people leave because I, I can't keep doing this. It's breaking my heart, you know? And that's, but that's, that's tough, right? Because you need to have emotion and empathy and you need to feel all those things. Yeah. Um, but you can't let it control you and drag you down. That, that's a tough balance. And, I think attorneys always deal with that. Oh, I think I think I do not think a lot of what I'm talking about is unique to this place, with it, with a couple of obvious exceptions. Um, it, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is um, actually uh, applies to the practice itself. You know, I mean, I'm sure some of the things I'm telling you, Don Klein tells his people pretty much the same thing. Um, and I would imagine some of the larger law firms, when they have their meetings, they're told it's a lot of the same stuff. I mean, I can't, I can't, um, you know, take credit for a lot of the a lot of the terms, you know, about you know, trust your guts. I mean, you know, things like that. They're they're truisms, but they're true. Right. Um, and it it's uh, sometimes these things can be said. I mean, we we just had a. a a case with two of our lawyers who worked their rear ends off and the kid was charged with first degree murder and he got convicted of second and the lawyers are very disappointed. Um, and I said to them, um, I've been in that seat, I know how it feels. Um, and telling you that you did a great job and worked really hard may not make you feel more comfortable, but it needs to be said. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, upon reflection tomorrow or the day after, they'll recognize, yeah, that I did do the best I can. I'm, I'm not happy, and I'm going to learn from, from these things that happened in that case. Um, but, you know, it, that's another thing I tell everybody is uh, I, I've been here for 47 years, and I still learn stuff all the time. You know, um, cases now, especially the serious ones, are involved involving um, you know all sorts of scientific forensics. You, know, you got DNA, which is an evo constantly evolving, um, and you know um, you have to have some grasp of it if you're going to cross-examine their witness. 
you know, one of the good things about this office is that I don't have to go to the judge and say, can you give me some money to hire an expert? I can just hire them. Right. You know, I have a budget that has enough money in it that I can hire. So I, if I have a DNA case, I have a, an expert who's, believe it or not, in Scotland. Uh, oh, he's he's dynamite. And um, we've used him. He's an absolute genius. He's a wonderful man. He did he did free seminar video seminars for our office to give us the basics on how uh, this probabilistic genotyping works. Um, and it, it, anytime we have a question, he emails back to us. Um, you know, uh, I've had cases where I've hired gunshot residue experts. Um, you know, uh, we, we you know there everything has come into question now. Some of the some of the things that used to be thought to be um, you know, irrefu irrefutable, like fingerprints and ballistics. Um, there's a lot of studies out there now saying, hey, we'll slow down. Uh, so it's a challenge, but it, it, it's a challenge. I wish I was 30 years younger so I could keep doing this um, because, it, you know, it's going to keep developing. And it, 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 it's hard, but it's fun. And, you know, I have a handful of lawyers that uh, kind of feel the same way about this. Uh, and, you know, they, they, they're eager to 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 learn uh, about these uh, forensics and eager to challenge them um, in court, whether it be a Daubert hearing or or just by uh, hiring an expert to come in and refute what they're saying, or just learning how to cross-examine. You know, we can use them as as consultants as well as witnesses. You know, um, so you know that's that's kind of um, exciting, uh, and it it keeps you motivated um, so you know it there's a lot of things that have happened that are that are helpful I mean you know just the use of body cams um, or the, the use of video interviews you know when I first started um, police officer got up on the witness stand and said uh, here's what I told the defendant and he said a b c d e and my clients whispered me I didn't tell him that and and you know you'd say to yourself well who are they? Who who the judge going to believe, the cop or the the crook? And um, it got to the point where uh, I, I had I had one trial that the officer said the defendant confessed to it, and the defendant got on the witness stand and said, "No, I didn't." And the jury found him not guilty. And I still have the news article. Basically said, if they don't start re recording these things, they're going to start losing these cases. Because why should we, you know, what the defendant said is just as reasonable as what the cops said. Um, so as a result, um, they started um, videotaping all these things. So no more of that BS. You know, if the if the cop says something and the defendant says I didn't say that we'll say well let's watch the video and see you know um, same with um, body cam you know if, if a police officer says well we stopped the car because he changed lanes or he wavered into well the cruiser cams and the body cams can say well wait a minute that's not true or yes it is true and and you can show to the client and say okay um, Here's what we're up against. So let let's 
wow, that CGI is really good. No, that's actually the game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, tough question. Do you go home and watch Dateline or 48 Hours? I hate them. I absolutely hate those shows. I, I, I watched a couple of times, and it just they're just they just irritate the hell out of me. I can't stand it. Um, I, I I think the people that are doing the interviews are so biased against us, uh, our side. Um, they're condescending. They're patronizing. Um, it's it's just awful. I, I I I no, I don't. I put on. I'm I'm a early to bed, but wake up early. Yeah. And everyone in the office can tell you, I always say, I like to watch old cowboy movies. <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll watch those old black and white Gene Autry or, or Tex Ritter or whoever. And, and they're kind of brainless. You can sit there and watch it and not have to worry about it or get pissed off when you're watching it. You Judge Troy, I believe, he's also a big fan of, uh, of the Western. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy it. You know, I'll sit there and watch Have Gun, Will Travel or Gunsmoke. And, yeah. you know, I'll say to these kids, yeah, I was watching Gunsmoke. What? <laughs> the other day, I, the, the other day, I was telling them um, when I was in college, we, my senior year, we got to vote on who we wanted to be our commencement speaker, and Groucho Marx won. Not, I was talking to five people, and none, I said, they said, "Who's Groucho Marx?" I said, "You don't know who Groucho Marx is? I, you ever heard of the, Grou the Marx Brothers? No." I said, Google it. <laughs> <laughs> um, he didn't, by the way, even though he won, the uh, administration said no. Oh, really? They nixed it? They nixed it. Well, you know who we ended up getting? Ted Kennedy. Oh. Which wasn't bad, yeah. you know. It, it was, it was uh, 1972, and so it was after both JFK and RFK had been murdered. Yeah. And we had to, it was outdoors in, in Burlington, Vermont. It was an absolutely beautiful day in May. Um, and there were guards on all the dorms uh, everywhere uh, with, you know, rifles. Um, we had to go through a metal detector to get our diploma. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he gave a uh, pretty rousing, rousing speech. He got, he got there because one of the students in my class was from Boston and was fairly connected to Democratic politics, and his dad got Ted to okay it. Um, this was before Chappaquiddick and right, stuff, so he wasn't. Yeah, yes, it was before <laughs> Chappaquiddick, and he was he was uh, viewed pretty favorably by, especially New England Democrats. You know, he. <laughs> I remember it, when he gave the speech. Nixon was the president and had just gone over to Red China for the first visit, and Ted Kennedy get that. Uh, so. Uh, President Nixon is over in Red China. He can have Red China. I'll take Winooski, Vermont. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was great. He he got a big cheer out of that. You know. Um, when was the last time you had a uh, an opponent for your ninety six? This my first year um, was that opponent I told you about, Ron Saskowitz. Um, and uh, since then, I haven't. Now, my predecessor first ran in 76 and never had an opponent and you know I think in 96 he kind of smelled that some that someone was gonna gonna run and he said by the by then I I had um, 
been kind of the face of the office. He right. he his his main thing was budget and administration, and he let me pretty much run the office, and I did all the murder cases. And so he said, "Why don't you?" Why don't you take over and I'll be chief deputy until I retire? And I said, you know, you've been good to me. Um, I'll take it, take a chance. And it, you know, I was pretty nervous about it because uh, my opponent had previously been the county attorney. Oh, I didn't. He also had run for Congress. He had run for the Senate, U.S. Senate. Oh. And um, I remember. It was 1996, and Nelson was the sitting governor, and he was running against Chuck Hagel for the U.S. Senate. And Hagel eventually prevailed. But um, they piggybacked me on one of their um, polls to just get name recognition of me and Saskowitz, and like he had 75% name recognition, I had about 35% name recognition. I said, oh boy, <laughs> we, we, got a problem. we got a problem here. And uh, you know, luckily I had a lot of support from the Bar Association, and some of the antics that I described kind of turned off a lot of maybe even Republican lawyers um, that said, yeah, this ain't right. Um, and we ended up beating them pretty, pretty soundly. Um, but we spent a lot of money. I did TV ads. I mean, I, I, I'm saying, my God, I'm doing TV and radio ads on, for the public defender's office. And, um, you know, in $96, we spent about 180 grand on everything. You know, TV, radio, yard signs. I mean, we went to every parade. We went to every, you know, church social and neighborhood. I mean, it was just exhausting. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been fortunate up to this point that I haven't, you know, haven't had an opponent since then. Um, I've tried to maintain a, uh, good relationship with lawyers. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that everyone loves me out there because I know better, but, um, I think I've, I've managed to, um, especially with the alumni that we talked about earlier, um, they have good feelings about me and how the office is run and the people that are here. Um, so, you know, I, I'm planning on, if I'm, if I'm not drooling on the desk, um, I have, I'm up again in 24, and I'd probably like to go at least one more time. I know that gets me into the high 70s by the end, but... Gets you to 50 years, though, too, with the office, right? Yeah. Yeah, be fit. You know, well, you know, if Trump and Biden can be president at seventy-eight, I can be public defender at seventy-five. There's, there's the line of the day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Uh, I, I have one last question. You okay. have an NDSU uh, mug over there. Uh -huh. Are, are you a fan? My son is the offensive line coach. He was at NDSU when they won five or six yeah. titles, and the head coach. Um, from NDSU got the K-State job. My son is now the offensive line coach at K-State. So um, I would, on a normal Friday, I would be wearing my K-State sweatshirt here today, um, but I didn't think that uh, <laughs> that would be quite the appropriate attire. Uh, you wouldn't appreciate that as much. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I would, if I did, I would explain I'm doing it because my son is the offensive line coach, and that would probably give me some cover. Um, and 
you know, of course, after last week when they when they beat Oklahoma, it was it was just exciting as hell. Uh, oh my gosh, that was huge. Yeah, it was it was it was great. And you know, when when he was at NDSU, um, you know, we went up to Fargo a few times, which is a nasty drive, um, and uh, they were they were good. I mean, NDSU has three quarterbacks that he coached in the NFL. Three. Um, that's including um, Easton Stick from Creighton Prep. Um, so that 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 program uh, was absolute dynamite, and they played FBS teams every year that he was there and be, were undefeated against them. They beat Kansas State the first year he was there, and they were ranked in the top fifteen, and they went down there and beat them on the last play of the game. Um, they they beat University of Iowa, who was ranked in the top ten, yeah. and beat them on a last second field goal. Uh, and I was at that game. It was unbelievable uh, to see what an upset. You know, I, I, we went to. Uh, they also played Iowa State uh, before they played Iowa uh, a year before that. But they're always playing in FBS schools. Place. Yes. Well, it, Connor it says left. I, I love it. They pay a seven hundred fifty grand to come down and kick their ass. <laughs> and uh, yeah, when Iowa State, we went to that game in Ames, and uh, NDSU had won like twenty six in a row games, and the, the the fans were just you know they give you the crappy seats when you're the visitors. You know you're in the side of the end zone somewhere, and the Students and fans were just taunting the hell out of us. And, you know, twenty six and one. Now you're going to play the big boys. NDSU beat them like thirty seven to ten or something. By the by, the middle of the third quarter, the only people left in the stadium were us. <laughs> and it was it was funny. Now when when we beat Iowa, the fans in Iowa were very gracious. Yeah. They didn't they didn't the fans at Iowa State not so much. They were they were much more um, aggressive yeah. uh, than the Iowa fans. Um, so I, you know, I, I've gone down to a couple of the games at K State. I went down to the Missouri game this year, and they beat them bad. I didn't go to the Tulane game where we stunk and got beat. Tulane's they're, they're running hot right now. Yeah, they yeah, they are, so. they are. So we'll see. They, they play Texas Tech tomorrow, which is not going to be easy. I, I'll tell you. I, Gundy, you know, the coach of Oklahoma State, he was quoted as saying, there ain't no layups left in this league. Can't KU's 4-0. Right. Um, and they yeah, were the, they were the we, we should be, bottom we feeders. We should be over in the 12 right now. That, that's where it's at. Right? Well, you know, it's different football. Yeah. Um, you know, the Big 12 is pretty offense-minded, whereas the Big 10 is grinded out. You know, NDSU style was grinded out. I mean, they would just run the ball down your throat. Um, that, that, while they do some of that still at K-State, um, uh, it, it's still, you gotta throw the ball. I mean, you, you almost have to score 38 points to win a game in the Big Big 12 now, you know? And in Big 10, if you score 20, 21, 24, you got a hell of a chance of winning, you know? Uh, is there anything that I missed that you want to add for the for the good of the order? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much. Sure. Really